most of society blames the police for the violent clashes between them and black men. But it is impossible for five burly police officers to struggle with and violently assault most black women, because black women do not resist arresting officers to the degree black men do. It is always possible to create a problem where none exists and it is always possible to make a small issue into a much larger one. But if we look at the problem analytically, we see there are not that many possible explanations for the problem arising between the police and young black men. One of the explanations that is not possible is that the problem arises because the police are racists and hate black men. A good 40 years was wasted explaining away what was happening using race. Racism remained the go-to answer for just about everything involving black people generally but specifically anything impacting black men. This was so even when the event involved black police. It was not just that racism caused too many to be content with superficial answers, it meant no one was willing to look at the issue of black-on-black black and black-on-white crime. But as time went on and the token few black police became the norm for many police forces more and more people realized racism was little more than a distraction from the real problem. Mayors, councils, police chiefs and entire police forces became staffed by black men, making it harder and harder to justify using the racist narrative as an explanatory vehicle. With the events in Uvalde and the more recent Memphis killing, the racists seemed to be officially dead. This does not mean a more productive explanation has become adopted. The being promoted is the culture of policing is the problem. But this is only marginally more insightful than the racist explanation. The truth is, if we accept this latest incident as contiguous with all similar incidences in the past, we must assume the entire police force of Memphis is racist, not because blacks are racist but because policing itself is a racist activity. There has to be something more going on than white culture. As the Memphis incident proves, there is too much happening that is not covered by the racist white narrative of the MSM. Are policemen trained to disproportionately harm black youths or not trained sufficiently to ensure black youths are not disproportionately harmed? The reality that a jurisdiction can have a black president, governor, senator, congressman, mayor, council, police chief and police force and still experience the same events as occurred when the authorities were all white, suggests we have labored under an agenda-driven conspiracy for the past 50 or so years. The problem is not racism, and it may not even by policing. But the racist narrative has precluded any serious look at other possible causes to what is happening. As an explanation, racism and the critical race theory perspective seem to be hate-motivated or what is called reverse racism. Because racism has proved to be inapplicable to the actions of police it means racism was never anything more than a hate-filled lie meant to cover up and justify the hate a lot of black people feel for whites. If it is not racism, it is still hated and it is still based on color. But if racism does not explain the actions of the police when dealing with black men, racism also does not explain the fear and hate black men have for the police. Let's assume the obvious. A lot of people hate the police whatever color they are and will strive to find a justification for their hatred. Let's also assume the hatred of the police is found in young black men than in other groups. When individuals fight and run from the police over minor traffic stops, something more is going on here than what most of us can see. There are only two possibilities. Either the police, regardless of color or position, hate black men or black men, regardless of their position in the community, hate the police, or perhaps both. But it is irrational to claim young men go into the police force and turn into monsters that hate one small segment of the population that previously, they were part of. 
but it is obvious that black Americans harbor a strong animosity against the police. Regardless of how they legitimize the animosity, the fact is the animosity exists. It is not that a young black male enters the police and begins to hate his own people. The young black man enters the police service and his own people begin to fear and distrust him, if not hate him. But it is not the man but the uniform and perhaps not the uniform as much as what the uniform represents to many black Americans. What is far more difficult to get a handle on is if the police play any role in fomenting this hatred and if so, what sort of role do they play? Modern society talks a lot about triggering events. Is there something the police do that triggers these violent clashes between them and black males? Let's assume the race card has lost credibility and take it off the table as an issue. Police culture as an explanatory tool is too self-serving and subjective to deserve investigation. Culture is too diffuse a term, too broad and too all-encompassing to justify changing laws and processes based on observations about this so-called police culture. Is the problem an inflection of voice, a way of looking, the way the police walk? The term, police culture, has too many variables to justify a serious discussion. But there is a culture not yet looked at. It is not police culture, per se, but the culture of sin, exemplified in law. It is the proposition of this essay that it is the legal system impacting historical memories that create a perfect storm of anarchy in the black youth community. To understand this proposition, we have to understand the law in terms of policing. We are all under the law and the police represent the law. The law protects us, we are told, but it does not always protect us directly. When we obey the law, we are governed by regulations which regulate behavior, though to what degree varies immensely. If we abide by the law, the law creates a reasonable amount of order. This is when we are directly protected by the law. But this protection is provided more by our obedience than by the law. But if someone breaks the law, we are harmed by the infraction. In this case, the law failed to protect us directly. However, indirectly, the law reduces the number of times lawbreakers will harm us and the degree to which we are harmed. The law reduces the harm we experience by capturing and punishing the lawbreaker. And herein is the problem. The law is only as perfect as the people who live under it. The law does not make people perfect, the people make the law perfect. If you are law-abiding the police are not a terror to you. Even if are engaged by the police, you will find the law helpful. The law governs even your interactions with those who enforce the law. But imagine if you are so against the law that the very people who enforce the law are viewed as the enemy. Where is your protection? From what quarter does security come? The law cannot protect you because you are outside of it. This is not a moot issue. There are people who, though law-abiding, were put outside of the law because of race, religion or some other reason. When the state makes laws that put you outside of the law and there is no way to be reconciled with the law, one has ceased to possess personhood under the law. This is where the anarchist meets black history to create a perfect storm of confrontational disaster. For white people the police are not the enemy. There is no reason for us to see them as the enemy. Our bad experiences generally remain individual and isolated. Whites are protected by the law even when breaking the law because they remain within the law. Even the criminal has legal protections. Not even the police can shoot and kill a person who ran a red light. There are limits to what the police are permitted to do which are scalable to the crime the person is thought to have committed. 
but there is a line which once crossed creates a totally different dynamic between the police and the suspect, and that is when the police have arrested the suspect. The law cannot directly protect you once you are in police custody. After you are arrested the law you are under is manifested in the person of the arresting officer. You can appeal and challenge the arresting officer, in court, not during the arrest. When under investigation, the suspect is protected by law. When arrested the suspect has only one source of protection, and that is the person of the arresting officer. He is under the law, not the suspect. The arresting officer is required to abide by the law, but the law is filtered through him, so far as the suspect is concerned. For most people being arrested is stressful but not traumatic. Few white people are traumatized by the prospect of being arrested, to where we are willing to risk death to avoid it. Being arrested is embarrassing and humiliating, but not so humiliating that one will risk serious bodily harm to resist it. For most of us it is a situation we are all potentially subject to. But this is not seen as a transitory humiliation by black youth. Arrest questions his manhood. In custody, a suspect is put in a position in which he is owned by the arresting officer. The suspect is in chains and the police officer has a gun and the key to your chains. Legally you have no rights, though the officer has a legal duty to provide care, under the law he has absolute power over you. He is authorized to shoot and kill you if the situation warrants it. The arresting officer is the arresting owner. The arresting officer is under the law. The suspect is under the care and keeping of the arresting officer. Not having the historic memory of being enslaved, whites can endure the humiliation of an officer treating them as an object. But the idea of being put in chains and being subjected to the state of ownership is more than many youths are able to emotionally process, so they react and to our eyes, overreact. But given enough stress and emotional trauma and many are no longer in control of what their body is doing. How would we react to a slave trader putting us in chains, in preparation for being shipped off to a life of servitude in a strange land? This is the time to provide solutions to the issue, but none is available. The arresting officer has to use handcuffs and other restraints for his own safety. He has to have the authority of law upon him. The suspect must obey the officer and cannot be excused for resisting, regardless of his emotional state. If anything, the police must be protected even more from these kinds of autonomic reactions. We can punish those who do not live up to the burden of care, but we cannot prevent the burden of care from being rejected by the suspect. There is no resolution to this dilemma. The prognosis is poor. The police cannot have their safety jeopardized because of the perception of the accused. At the same time a focus on the safety of police officers exacerbates the perception of suspects as to the nature of his arrest. As the negative reaction to being arrested increases in severity and numbers the need to protect police officers by greater enforcement measures will create a downward spiral. We predict a worsening of the situation for the foreseeable future. When the police detain you they have effectively exercised ownership of you. This implicit right of governments to invoke their claim on your identity always exists and is visible when you have to license things you own.